This is Neon Radio, episode 125, with professional violinist Anna Bullbrook. Welcome to Neon Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, fashion and lifestyle photographer for today's top brands, performers, and game changers. On this podcast, we explore the body, mind, and soul of the creative entrepreneur, bringing you inspiring guests to help take your creativity, business, and life to the next level. Hello, hello, fellow Neonites. I'm excited to bring to you today's guest. She is a professional violinist. She was the main violinist for Airborne Toxic Event. And don't get that mixed up with the band Airborne. They are two different things, very different music. And she also has played with Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros over the years quite often. She is uber talented. And now she's starting her new venture, The Girls School which is a women-led music festival, online platform, and collective that celebrates and connects women-identified artists, leaders, and voices. It's all about raising women up to be leaders. I am a very big fan of what she's doing, and I'm very excited to talk about what she's up to now and how she has made the transition into a new creative career. We talk about how she started out in playing the violin and making a living with that and what she went through as a band member, being the only girl on tour and how she developed the idea of the girls' school out of that. We also talk about the issues that she experienced and many more things. We also talk about how she transitioned into a new venture, a new career, which is creative in its own self. I mean, it's a creative business to create this girls' school, and it's a whole new venture and something that a lot of creatives go through, and I even feel like I'm going through some of that myself. A few more notes here. The show notes can be found over at neonradio.com slash EP125. We'll have everything linked up, including any any links that are mentioned in the interview. Also, don't forget to go and join us in the Neon Life community over at neonlife.com slash community. And neon is spelled N-I-O-N for both of those URLs. It is a space where you can meet and collaborate with other creatives, share your work, get feedback, I love seeing what you guys are inspired by, what your work is, and I love seeing you guys connect with each other. So jump on into the community and we'll see you there. And with that, I bring to you the one, the only, Miss Anna Bullbrook. What's up, everyone? We have Anna Bullbrook in the studio today. Welcome to Neon Radio. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on. We connected through a mutual friend and you have some very exciting things happening right now. Yeah. So first of all, let's talk about your background. You're a superstar violinist. I mean, superstar is a strong word. Is it? (laughs) Is it now? I mean, considering you've played on stages in front of hundreds of thousands of people, I'd I'd say it's for the category. Yeah, I I was having a conversation recently with the other person who plays violin, who who I think is really cool. (laughs) 
And we were joking about how when you just put the word rock in front of the word violinist and it just immediately becomes really embarrassing. Like saying you're a rock violinist, just it goes from <laughs> like, I, I feel like I'm a violinist feels like cool. And then I'm a rock violinist is just <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> and why is that? I, mean, I don't know. Maybe you're from that, if you're in that space, it, it has a negative connotation. I think it just, maybe it's just the cartoon image of the rock and roll sex god and then you combine that with the violin suddenly you're immediately in spinal tap territory <laughs> although i love spinal tap that's it i love it for its humor <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> for its humor it's, speaking it's tragically honest humor <laughs> <laughs> speaking of humor so you were in the band airborne toxic event yes and I, so I Googled airborne band and that uh, was, that was like spinal tap right there. So, right. So the <laughs> airborne toxic event right is not the same band as airborne, the Australian metal band. And actually one time at the end of like a year and a half of touring, we were so tired. We were so ready to go home. I mean, we were having a great time, but we were like, this record cycle is done. It's time to make a new record. And then we got this call from our manager. <laughs> it was like, hey guys, so you, you might need to go on tour with Lady Gaga for a long time. And, you know, it's, yeah, some of the guys are real like indie rock purists. And then there was me being like, I mean, yeah, we have to. I'm in. <laughs> like, absolutely. Uh, so we were kind of talking about it. And we were sort of like, oh, I know we all want to go home, but this is such a great opportunity. And, Basically, there was confusion <laughs> that had made it through our booking agents, through, I mean, through like Lady Gaga's booking agents, through our agency, all the way through our management team to us. That wow. No one caught that Airborne and the Airborne Toxic Event weren't the same band. So <laughs> ultimately, oh my God. ultimately, they finally figured it out after we had like, you know, mentally like, like chewed on this and stressed about it for like, a couple days at the end of this tour, we were like, oh, you know, we're so tired, but we have to, we have to. And then it was like, actually, a wrong band. Wrong <laughs> band. Wow. Wow. That's, that's quite the band to be mixed up with. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? No. <laughs> You're like, which one is she? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So funny, funny, funny okay. little, uh, funny little mix up there. So thanks for clarifying. <laughs> And great little, great, great story. I love it. You also played with Edward Sharp, Magnetic Zeros. Yes. When I was just starting out as a wee rock violinist, um, when I still had a job and I was, I just joined Airborne and we were working really, really hard on our first record and getting a little traction in LA and it was really exciting. I also was working with Edward Sharp at the same time. And I remember hearing those demos, hearing Alex's first demos and just loving them and feeling like they had such a told such a story and were such great songs that I just agreed to play on them, you know, for, I just said, yeah, I want to play on this. And then in the end it ended up not being for free. It was a great, you know, it, it was great, but, um, fantastic. but yeah, I just remember being like, I have to do this. I have to, I love this so much. <laughs> <laughs> How often have you played with them? I know you said you've jumped in and out, but, uh, I, I would say, Every at this point, it's probably once a year, every other year, maybe. Yeah. Um, last time I played with them was at the Hollywood Bowl, which was 
I mean, talk about times to call up your old friends and be like, hey, you need some backup? I'm in town. <laughs> Again, small venue. <laughs> the smallest venue <laughs> on the planet. Um, That's awesome. It was, that was, that was really great. I was so proud of them. <laughs> yeah, be proud of you too. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, pretty lucky. That's amazing. So now you, you've started this thing called the Girls School. Tell us about that. Yes. Okay, so... I've been in bands for 11 years and except for Edward Sharp, which had at one point two female members. Um, I mean, I, I'm the only woman in airborne and because we're an alternative rock band and we've had traction alternative radio and, uh, because we have a male singer, we end up always having male support bands or being at radio festivals, which are all male or, you know, I'm out on tour and I'm on a tour bus and, we always bring one more woman, but we'll be the only two women, you know, with a group of 20 people rolling around the country in a bus and then we'll go to a festival and you'll feel like there's a million women, but it's just cause there are some more, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. the number goes from like, oh, there's two in 20 to, oh, there's four in 20. And you're like, <laughs> wow, there's, there's women everywhere. Just crawling with women. This is amazing. Uh, so at first I was so wrapped up in the drama and the excitement of just making it with the band that I didn't really think about the various, I mean, you kind of encounter your gender or like if you're in the minority in a group, you kind of encounter your identity as like the other, yeah. um, a little bit, but I think it, I just think I was so wrapped up in the ups and downs of the process of making it that I didn't really embrace that experience until much later. And it wasn't until we had some time off and I volunteered at a, a camp rock and roll camp for girls, LA, which is oh. um, an organization that empowers girls through loud music. It's really cool. It's a social <laughs> justice organization. So like music is sort of the vehicle for teaching girls, these really cool lessons about friendship and taking up using your voice and taking risks and feeling confident and uh, body positivity and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I've suddenly in this all female utopia for a week and I had this like brain scrambling experience where first I felt like, I don't know how to talk to anyone. Will my sense of humor work here? Like, whoa, what is this collaborative and <laughs> kind and, and caring and exploratory and yeah. like truly like positive environment. I've never, wow, I've never been in a place like this. And after that I realized how, hungry I'd been for that kind of connection mm. in music. And so that was a really long introduction to talking about why I started um, an all women fronted, all women identified and non-binary fronted music <laughs> festival. Um, but Girl School is a three day festival. It's all women led. It's all featuring women led projects. Um, it has, we have talks and panels and workshops and um, we donate hundred percent of the net proceeds from ticket sales to a girl positive charity, but really it's just a fucking good show, a really fucking good show with all this really, really, really amazing talent that just happens to be led by women. And yeah, so you can come for a really like, like sick lineup and then just know that you're kind of getting some feminism mixed in there on the side and doing something good for girls and maybe learning something at a talk. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. a little feminism thrown in there. <laughs> if, if music is our fudge Sunday, feminism is the kale that we weave inside the ice cream. Oh, okay. so it's good for you, but it tastes good. 
The kale. The kale. The kale. <laughs> kale life. It's that kale chocolates movie. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. That's hilarious. So, like, who have you guys kind of, what's, I guess, what's saying some examples of who you've had at the show or at, had at the festival and, like, speakers and just to give us a little context? Um, well... In LA, this past year, we had Shirley Manson kick off the festival with a Q&A that uh, Billboard live stream. That was really, really cool. She's like a particularly strong woman with a really strong perspective on being a woman in rock music over the last you know, 20 years of her career. It's like, she's incredible. Um, and we've had artists like Chelsea Wolfe play and Kitten and uh, Kate Nash. We've had like really incredible, oh, we have this amazing Chilean rock star in our gang, Francisca Valenzuela, who has her own feminist festival in Chile. <laughs> She's won like Latin Grammys and stuff. That's um, awesome. Who else? The Bird and the Bee, Deep Valley. I mean, I could just, th- we've had 70 bands, so I could just go on for a long time, but I think it would get boring. There you go. <laughs> There's lots of bands, <laughs> lots of amazing talent. Many bands, very talent, much much feminism. <laughs> Lots of feminism. Now, now are guys allowed to go to this or is it yeah. all women? No, it's like, it. it's completely, in, I mean, it's really inclusive. So there are boys on stage. There are boys in the crowd. There are people who identify everywhere. And I've heard that people feel like it's a very welcoming and safe environment. And I think that, I think that vibe in addition to being so stupidly proud of the lineup that we put together mm-hmm. is like what I'm most proud of. It's just that feeling that you're in a good place with good people who love music and it's safe. Yeah. yeah. Yourself. That's the best. (laughs) (laughs) It's the environment that you've always wanted and you went and created it. (laughs) Well, me and a lot of other people, (laughs) it takes, takes a community to make that happen. It does. It does. But it sounds like it's your vision and you're spearheading it. I do. I mean, it's, it's my favorite thing. So I love it. I love it. Well, let's jump back here and talk kind of uh, a little bit more about your story of, uh, of your creative path. And, you know, how did you get started with the violin playing that and then moving forward? Um, well, I started playing violin when I was four because wow. my big brother plays violin also. Um, and somehow in my family, my parents just really took to raising two young violinists. So, I think we were into it, but you know, you don't get to be a great violinist without a pretty considerable amount of parental involvement. Uh, and we were just really serious violin kids. Um, and I studied really hard all the way through high school and college, but I also really loved school and I loved to read. I was like a total bookworm and I drew and painted and I wrote fiction. Like I was always making stuff. Mm. Um, and I wrote poetry for a little while. I, in college, I kind of found my stride with microfiction. <laughs> <laughs> microfiction. And for a while, I thought maybe I'd be a journalist or I don't know. I, I really thought I was going to be some kind of like professional in a, I don't know, in a big building in New York, wearing all black all the time, 
you know, like sashaying down the sidewalk, like really fast. Um, <laughs> sashaying down the sidewalk. Yeah. Always spilling that deli coffee on my cuff. Like that was, <laughs> that was like how I saw my future when I was 17 maybe. And then when I, uh, my senior year of college, I put together this big event. I'd sort of gotten involved with this group of more artistic kids at, uh, at Columbia and, I did a brief stint. I guess I should have noticed this, but I did a brief stint in a screamo band in college. A screamo band. A screamo band. I played violin in a screamo band. <laughs> that okay. went on to become this band called Birthday Boys with a Z. And they put out like a split seven inch with some <laughs> oh other. Oh my God. Anyway. So I sort of like in college, I guess, discovered my, I was starting to discover my sense of taste and a sense of cool through my new screamo artsy so, friends oh my god so actually <laughs> you're gonna have to explain screamo is that like metal is that like just screaming punk or what what exactly is a screamo band i would say it's oh, i'm gonna i'm gonna fuck this up because defining genres is not my strong suit and if anything my life is about like combining or <laughs> like evading genre uh but i would say screamo is Yes, the vocals are screamed, kind of emotionally, <laughs> kind emotionally, of emotionally screamed <laughs> over like otherwise sort of what would resemble instrumental prog rock. Okay, okay. But we had like hit songs like Dad, You Haunt Me With Your Short Shorts and <laughs> we had a pretty good cover of Pas Courvoisier screaming. <laughs> I can only imagine. We had like eight fans. <laughs> <laughs> and the best part is one of those guys moved to LA and now runs this really successful real estate app that he started. And I was like, wait, remember when you were like the cool renegade screamo kid and I was like the buttoned up violinist, like thinking I might be a lawyer one day. That's so funny. <laughs> wait, hang on. You're married with a kid and I'm like freewheeling. <laughs> like like backwards like, day. You're like, look at us now. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> um, okay, so, so, that's, from, so now that we've defined Screamo. Thanks for that <laughs> definition. That was fantastic. Which is probably inaccurate. Uh, yeah. So then I, I worked, I fell in with this group of kids working on this big, like, interdisciplinary art party. And somehow the mantle was handed to me to quarterback this thing my senior year. And so I put on <laughs> this huge party in this warehouse in Tribeca for like the whole school came, you know, we, I moved in there during finals for a week. I slept on the floor on this mattress while people like rattled the front door that was loosely chained closed. And I was just being there installing artwork with our curators. And it was insane. I mean, just the things that you do when you're 21 and don't know better. It's like, it's so amazing. I want that energy now. <laughs> um, and you know, we had this party and it was, it was celebrating everybody's work. Cause I went to an academic school but there were all these like incredibly creative people whose work never got shown mm. or maybe they weren't pursuing like the visual art track, but they were secretly this sick illustrator or painter. It's just at Columbia, the program, you know, you're tempted away. Anyway. Yeah. So we threw this big party. It was a big success. And I was like, I found my calling. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do forever. And so I quit playing violin, mm. moved via Colorado to California, Los Angeles. And then I realized that I didn't know anyone <laughs> and I needed a job and I had to start totally over. 
and I didn't know what to do. Cause I was like, well, I'm not this violinist anymore. Who, like, who am I? Wow. And that was so wild. And I mean, I think your early twenties are painful anyway, but that was like wild and painful and exciting and yeah. painful yeah. <laughs> and humbling, humbling as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so yeah. So then I, I dabbled in like normal life. I worked at a talent agency for a year and was like, these are not my people. Wow. What did you do there? I worked in classical music with soloists and conductors. And then I, from there I went into PR and I worked with like in classical music and nonprofits doing really weird communications research and consulting and some traditional PR for them. And then during that time I joined the band. I was like, I had a revelation. <laughs> what joined which band? I joined airborne. So while I was working at my second job and I was like, uh, having a lot of like, uh, what's it called? Cognitive dissonance. I was having like massive cognitive dissonance. Cause I was like, okay, I can do this like corporate stuff, mm -hmm. but that I, this isn't me. And, uh, I got this gig playing, I went back to Colorado for this gig playing behind Kanye West on the side of a mountain. <laughs> and I flew out. I met up with all my Colorado friends from the summer and was standing behind him playing. And I had this like total revelation that like, wait, hold on. I hadn't played violin in several months. So I was like, oh, feeling a little rusty. Yeah. And then I was like, wait a second. Wait, wait, you can play violin like this, like this this is fun. <laughs> I want to play violin like this all the time. So now are you talking about stylistically or the actual, like, you I'm, know, playing with Kanye, like that kind of like in a more like mainstream set, sense of the word, I guess. I mean, cl you know, classical is like, I don't know if you'd consider it mainstream or not, but it can be, but I mean, I'm, I guess more mainstream music. I think what happened was I had been pretty locked into a, except for my time in a screamo band and like two minutes of, playing jazz violin in high school. And actually this, this guy who now goes by Kishibashi was my jazz violin teacher. <laughs> um, Kishibashi. I don't know if you've heard of him, but uh, Japanese? yeah, but he has this really cool project called Kishibashi. Um, but except for that, I was really locked into this classical mindset that music had to be a certain way and it had to be really hard to have value. I guess I would compare it to like, you have to have the technical skill of Rembrandt to have value as an artist versus like the visceral, something simple and visceral. And I think in the fine, like in visual art, my taste yeah. was wide open, but in music, I didn't have, I was just locked. And then in the process of kind of killing that classical violinist and letting her go and being not a violinist anymore, mm -hmm. like I was free to be open to what it would look like for violin to be valuable in other ways. Mm. And it sounds so simple, but it's like your perspective is so limited by your expectations and your definitions. Um, yeah. That once you see a new path or once you take those definitions away and you're free to come up with your own, which could look really obvious to someone else, but. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm sure like, especially being brought up in the classical training, thinking of the that's because it's so like almost confined in a certain sense that like playing outside of that, taking your instrument and playing outside of that is a whole different 
set of rules and a whole different, you feel confined, but you don't. Yeah. And it's also funny. It's a whole different set of physical variables that I think playing amplified music has a, it's a different set of physical conditions, like in the space with sound, but also if you're high level in classical music, you usually have a really nice violin. It's the kind of violin you would never take into a rock club. You would never even clip a microphone to it because you might chip the the varnish. Like you don't chip the varnish of a violin from the 1800s. Like you don't right. fucking do that. Right. <laughs> it would damage your investment and in your instrument, you know? So I think there's, it, there's just a bunch of everything from like the physical limitations of the classical world to like, yeah. Uh, well, you've been talking about the posture and stance and all that stuff. And too, also right? uh, the feedback from the room, like when you play classical music, it's all acoustic. So your feedback from the sound is like under your chin or it's vibrating in your face or, and you're hearing everything in the room and the moment and everyone like the connection with what you're hearing and what you're doing is so detailed and you don't need any infrastructure. Mm. Like it's an infrastructureless thing, unless you're maybe <laughs> playing outdoors, which doesn't fare so well for string instrument classical <laughs> music. Um, but in a rock band, it's loud. Like you're, the feedback from what you're playing, like I'm not saying like feedback, like actual feedback when you hear something go. Right. But right. when you're playing and you and you, you need to hear your monitor is like on the floor pointed at you. There's this like really loud guitar happening. Maybe the other thing you're listening to are the drums and it's coming from, you know, way above your head or behind you. And like, there's all this physical stuff that's different. Yeah. And then if you add in pedals and electronics and stuff, then you also are dealing with electricity and signals. And it's, it's like learning a new instrument. Yeah. It's like learning rock, how to thrive with like rock production and stage production. So yeah. that was a big that was a big learning curve for me. I'm sure. I mean, especially, it don't, do you feel like you had to relearn a whole different set of rules yeah. within that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah. And there, it was, I made some really cute rookie mistakes like early on. I'd be like, why is it, why is my violin working? And then like someone would run and change the battery in my tuning pedal. Like, <laughs> oh, rookie, oh, no. rookie error. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> like, and I'd have thoughts like, if I were a dude, this would ne I would never have forgotten that. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I would have forgotten that. <laughs> I would never have forgotten the battery. I would have just known. <laughs> crazy, <laughs> crazy stuff. Oh, my God. That's funny. Wow. And so how did you start thriving in that space? In, in the rock? The rock space. Oh, God, the rock violin is too cheesy as... Two words it, that are fine on their own and you put them together and it's like instant, instant cheese plate. <laughs> so, um, so then what, if, if that's the cheese plate, what would, what would the, what would you want to call? How would you classify yourself? Oh, I would be the fig jam. The fig jam. It's the best part. I mean, except for the cheese. Yeah. I'd, or, or I'd just be the, I'd, I'd be the cheese. Cheese is delicious. <laughs> cheese is one of the best things on the planet. I don't think I could ever give up cheese. <laughs> um yeah i don't i don't know how i got to grow into that i think partly i was in a group of people that were committed to having a violinist and having me be there and so we quickly just figured it out mm -hmm. and then i think i think because half the band weren't that seasoned as 
it was just interesting. I was the most trained player in the band, hands down. So I right. kind of had this bed of confidence to fall back on. Mm-hmm. But then I was new to all the rock stuff. So I felt right. like I had something I could kind of, I had a, lot, a deep well of experience to draw from. And then it made it okay to kind of be this neophyte mm. in this other arena. And I think, you know, I think everybody had stuff to learn when we started the band. So we were all working on different stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Is it now... What what's your creative process like when you're practicing or writing songs, and how do you build, you know, take what the classically trained you, and build into, big jam, <laughs> <laughs> oh rock violinist for those who didn't catch that, but um, but yeah, like what's your what's your creative process look like in terms of sitting down with the band and just like writing and creating kind of seems like a little bit more on the fly versus like writing notes on a chart. Yeah, I think it was a learned space. And I think to learn it, I had to be uncomfortable a lot and like try a lot of things. Um, And I got more and more comfortable taking that risk in front of other people. Um, For a long time, I think I would kind of try out ideas at home and then bring them in when I had some that I felt like were good. Mm -hmm. And then just over time, you get more comfortable. I mean, it's like creativity is a muscle. Yeah, You know, if you work it out. Sometimes you have to be sore, <laughs> you know, like, like if you do the same workout every day, you don't get sore. You don't really grow or right, right. change. So you do have to push yourself into really uncomfortable spaces. And what's really uncomfortable for you at the beginning is maybe this little tiny risk that later to you is like, huh, like a, that's a, I can't believe that stressed <laughs> me out. Like now I'm doing X, Y, Z in front of all these people or whatever. Yeah. Um, So I think so much of that transition was checking my classical perfectionism and need to know and need to like imperfection is not allowed in classical music. You can be spontaneous within your perfection. Mm -hmm. Like you can add a little nuance to something, but you're not writing music. Right. And rock and roll, like I think allows for imperfection and, some of the best moments are when you fuck up and the band falls apart and you're all like, Oh shit, <laughs> got to start over. And audience is like, ah, you know, we're with you. And you're like, thank you. And you know, everyone's people together in the room for a second. Like, yeah, those are some of the most winning moments in a way. Yeah. And, uh, I feel grateful to have landed in a space where you can wear whatever you want. You can literally eat shit and fall down on stage and like, people are like, are you all right? Cool. (laughs) You know, I mean, like you can start something and just total, I mean, ideally you're perfect all the time, but if you totally fuck it up, you know, it's not the end of the world. And I think ultimately in classical music, if someone started a violin concerto and it fell apart, yeah. Like no one's going to die. This isn't the emergency room. Yeah. But I think there is this ethos that like that cannot happen. Like you cannot, like you need to prepare so much that that will never happen to you. Right. And I think that's like, for me, that was just, I have to tell that person to like shut up and like take five all the time. (laughs) It's so true though. I mean, you have to really like almost talk to those, those voices or the loops in your head that keep you from pressing forward creatively. Yeah. And I noticed your bath mat 
said, create, create every day, create something today, even if it sucks, Mm -hmm. which I feel like is a mantra of mine, which is like kind of embrace the suck. You have to write a lot of bad shit before you can write good shit. (laughs) Absolutely. And as you get better and better, I think your success rate gets higher and higher. Mm -hmm. Um, or your ability to discern if something's good or not gets faster. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's like embrace being willing to be bad. Like embracing the suck is a huge part of the process that is not really welcomed in classical music. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) No teacher's been like, just embrace it. Just fuck it up. Go for it. It's beautiful. Like no one has ever said that to me. In the context of a violin lesson. Yeah, I could could totally understand that. That That was a disaster, but it was beautiful and you're going to get there. Like no one was, no, never. Yeah. And now you're like, well, I fucked (laughs) up and ooh, actually it's a happy accident. Yeah. And I created something beautiful. Or I fucked up and that didn't sound very good and it's over now. Yeah. Now to the next thing. (laughs) Like either way, you're you're moving forward. So what has that taught you about um, failure in life? I mean, there's all that stuff about failing upwards. And I think Mm. it's true. Like it's so much better to try something and risk failure or try something and fail than not try because not trying is you have a hundred percent failure rate at that point. So I think, I mean, I think this last two years for me has been this process of throwing myself at new things and it, it has been the hardest and like, absolutely most rewarding two years of my life. Like I'm even tearing up thinking about how hard it's been at times because Mm -hmm. it's like, it's the scariest space to be in. It's gnarly. And then you achieve whatever you've tried or you like get to a new place with it. Or maybe you, you were aiming too high, but you land a little below where you were aiming and it's still further ahead than you were or whatever. I mean, I think if you're a hard worker, you can get really far just by trying and meeting it. Yeah. Um, And so I think, I think there's this like, I mean, it's pretty profound. Like once you embrace the suck and risk and exposure to embarrassment, then you're free. Yeah. Yeah. Like there are no rules. You're free. Yeah. You got it. It sounds really hippie. (laughs) (laughs) Embrace the suck. That's that's the next t-shirt. And now now we're going to roll a big joint and smoke it because we're free. (laughs) Men's ayahuasca ritual. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, so what have been some of the biggest challenges over the last couple of years? I guess, you know, you, you had kind of started, we, we talked a little bit about you, the last couple of years, you starting girl school, but what have, what's been some of the challenges, um, throughout that you, you said it's been, there's some, been some really hard times and some really good times. I mean, the vast majority of the time, girl school feels like this natural unfolding. Like I'm working on it and I'm working hard, but it's so fun for me that it, and it just keeps feeling like it has momentum. And I think that makes it really easy to keep throwing myself at it Mm -hmm. and for everyone involved with it to kind of keep going. And so there's so much like joy and ease that the hard work is mostly, I think, internal It's just, I've never led something this big before. I haven't had a, you know, quote unquote job since I was 23. (laughs) You know, I never led a team. I mean, I I feel like in college, I was always kind of in charge of 
things. But, you know, as an adult, like I don't have sort of professional team leading experience. So I've been doing a ton of really nerdy homework on like, what is leadership and like trying to channel the brains of the people I admire who lead stuff. And I think do it really beautifully. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think so, so much of that battle is just internal. Yeah. Cause externally it's like, you just make stuff up and try to do it. And if it works, it works great. And if it doesn't work, you move on to the next thing. But internally there's like the, am I good enough? Do I know what I'm doing? Like fake it till you make it, you know, like, and, or like, Oh my God, this amazing thing happened. Like something really cool happened recently. And I shorted out for like a week because it was too big. And then, you know, a week later I was like, okay, I can think about this <laughs> rationally now because calm down. There are no rules. Yeah. I'll just figure it out. I'm going to fuck up on the way. Worst thing that happens is this crazy opportunity doesn't happen, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it's like, it's crazy how good things can be destabilizing too in yeah. your sense of self. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's... Like, have you ever had an opportunity so big that you kind of like lose it a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I've had, I've had a handful of those. <laughs> you got to call, like bring yourself back together and then like push past that fear of whatever fear of success or fear of failure, both of them, I think, and really get after it. Yeah. And then the next time you have a project like that or an opportunity like that, it's not as scary because you've done it. Yeah. You're, you're like mentally ready for that level or you see yourself as being at that level. But I think when it's constant growth, it's like you're constantly like, am I at this level? Am I at this level? <laughs> <laughs> How about now? Exa- I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm exhausted. But constant growth, I think, is very important. Yeah. But I see, I see why people, you know, some people really like a good, stable job because it's, it is like, this shit is not for the faint of heart. It's <laughs> it hard sometimes. <laughs> it is definitely not easy. And it is, it's a journey. It's, it's a big journey. And I think if you can make it through and figure your way through it, then you become successful. I heard this quote was like the, the more uncertainty that you can deal with, the more successful you'll be. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Amen. so how do you deal with uncertainty like especially like you we talked about you know how you're transitioning into this whole new space you're a different creative space for you you know building the girls school and and everything and how have you dealt with the the uncertainties of moving into that new space I don't know if I deal with uncertainty well I think last year I didn't deal with it very well at all and I think there was a lot of it and I didn't I mean, being in a band has its ups and downs. Like mm-hmm. it's a pretty dynamic existence. There are fat years and lean years. There's drama. Mm-hmm. It's music and art. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't think I was really prepared for what it's like to shoulder that as the sort of generator mm-hmm. and leader of something. And and I think especially earlier on when girl school was less formed, you know, we'd only had one festival. It was full of possibility, but we didn't have this, we didn't have a long track record to point to, to be like, we're a thing. Yeah. I think it was really hard. And I think I learned, I think I learned that I didn't deal with uncertainty very well. Mm. Someone actually gave me a book that said, that says something about like coping with uncertainty. <laughs> the woman who started Girls Rock Camp LA gave me a book and was like, 
this is one of my favorites. Um, Do you know what it was called? It was called, it's called something, it's like, uh, is it Pima, Pem, Pima Chaudron or whatever? Oh, I've that heard, I've heard name? that name. I don't know how to pronounce it. And the title is called something like navigating uncertainty or coping with, <laughs> I mean, it's like really on the nose. That's hilarious. One of the past podcast guests has, has a book on uncertainty. Yeah. And I think it's probably the most uncomfortable, like human condition aside from like grief or something is just not knowing we hate it. Yeah. We hate it so much. And, uh, I still haven't answered your question because I don't know. I think I've really learned to let go a bit more mm. and I've really embraced my yoga practice oh, and I try to meditate more, which is really hard when you're in the grips of some extreme uncertainty, but like just trying to find a calm place in the midst of this and also feel it, like let it be scary or shitty. And then also when I let it be that, then it becomes fun again. Yeah. Like when I'm not walking around being afraid of feeling like I don't know what the fuck is up or feeling mm -hmm. like I don't know what's happening next. Cause I yeah. can't, I can't know. Yeah. Like I think part of that is really scary and part of that's really fun in equal measure. And I think they're two sides of the same coin, like literally two sides of the same chemical that flows through your body, mm -hmm. you know, like adrenaline, I mean, uh, cortisol, like it's the yeah. same thing if you're stressed or if you're pumped. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you can name it one or the other. And I think trying to let it be like exciting instead of like, so scary is yeah. like a nice way to reframe. But so, yeah. So it sounds like reframing perspective, <laughs> um, meditation. <laughs> I know I've had, I had to start meditating like the last couple of years. It's been, it's been huge for me. Um, to calm things down. But I mean, you're here, you're still, you're still doing it. So you've been doing something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and I think it gets easier. I think it's the most intense at the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you can get through the first couple years, <laughs> first get through the first day and then the first week. And then, you know, like it's just the most intense when you have, when it's the most, um, I think David Lynch once described it as building a, every day when he walks to set, it's like building a glass bridge, you know, mm. like that day is like building this glass bridge and every day you have to build it from scratch. And I feel like the process of embracing this like uncertainty, it's like every day you wake up and you're like today, <laughs> I imagine this bridge and I'm going to try to build it. <laughs> but when it's in the imagination phase is when it's the most intense. And then when you're towards the end of the bridge and you see it coming together, you're like, this is a real, the bridge is here. Okay. You can calm down a little. Yeah. You, know, you yeah. can walk back across it at the end of your day. Like, I did that. <laughs> I did that. I did that. <laughs> you, you weave the bridge, you weave, weave the parachute. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? I mean, I, you know, I think there's a handful of things but meditation is a big thing. I think, you know, I think doing a lot of personal development work over the last few years has really helped. And because it is, it is uncertain. And there was a, there was a point a few years ago where, you know, the industry started shifting, my work started slowing down and I just like, it sent me into a mental downward spiral. And so I, I started to this emotional intelligence leadership training out in LA that, you know, helped shed a whole new perspective on life. And so there's a lot of internal work, like you're saying that, you know, I've had to do myself to get through the ups and downs and the uncertainty. Yeah. 
So I've been taking a deep dive <laughs> into some of that stuff. Um, and most recently I've been mainlining these Harvard Business Review leadership podcasts. Oh. And it, it's like this nerdy guy talking to you about like various topics on leadership. My favorite is when he, when he starts to go like, now can women lead and be true to themselves? And then he starts <laughs> like, but he's basically reading these like, you know, academic or, or research papers on leadership. And so much of the research is like, people try to say that a leader is like this tall or has these traits. And the truth is that leaders are like everything. Yeah. Like there's no template except everybody says it's important to do personal development work. Really? And know yourself. That's very interesting. Makes because sense. you, until you know yourself, you're limited by your, uh, you're, you're imprisoned by yourself. And if you know and trust yourself and can navigate yourself and kind of be the same person all the time, yeah, then other people can really trust you. And you'll also know like where your strengths and weaknesses are. And yeah, you become self-aware of what's happening. Yeah. But I thought that was really interesting. It's almost like the way out is in. <laughs> mm, I like that. In a weird way. Yeah. Like the way to most communicate what you care. F the, the way to achieve what you most care about in the world is like know yourself first, which is so insane. <laughs> like that's so insane. <laughs> You'd think it'd be like, listen to others or... Yeah, but you got to know thyself. It's so, right? <laughs> In the words of Buddha. <laughs> totally. I mean, it's it's as though religious leaders have been pre preaching this for centuries. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, probably more the Eastern side of things, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I mean, I don't know if, what, who you've read uh, or who you've been looking at, but like John Maxwell, he has got a lot of stuff on leadership. And this guy, Michael Hyatt, talks a lot about that, about leadership stuff. But yeah, it's hugely important to get to know yourself in the frame of leadership. I love that. Or in the frame of life. But yeah, I yeah. just thought that was really in, like, it was, I just thought that was so interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. What kind of things do you do, uh, say, on a daily basis to, I don't know if it's like a morning routine or, or things that keep you balanced? Hmm. I mean, I've had kind of the same, I think because I toured so much for so long, I developed a pretty routinized life. Like I put a few things on autopilot so that I could feel at home anywhere. Hmm. One was get a great cup of coffee in the morning. Ideally make it myself if possible, but hmm. if not, buy a delicious cup of coffee like as fast as possible upon waking up <laughs> and then exercise. Mm. Like I do yoga. I have a pretty committed Ashtanga practice um, and I run, which is great because you can do it anywhere and it's basically free um, except for a <laughs> pair of shoes now and again. And recently I started in the vein of taking risks. I started taking dance classes Ooh. like, modern dance classes. Wow. Impressive. So that's really fun and feels good. It feels like performing minus like a crowd, you know? Yeah. Um, and you get to use your whole body in this really insane way. It's really fun. Um, <laughs> and then my other part of my sort of Holy Trinity is eating well. Mm. Like I really try, I try to take care of myself internally because if I don't feel good, it comes out in work my what I'm working on 
or I won't work because I'll just be too busy feeling shitty. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's really basic. I wish it was, I wish there was something sexier <laughs> there for you. No, that's great. That's great. I mean, it's, it's good to know. It's cool to know like what, you know, what you do on a daily basis that, that keeps you centered and keeps you balanced. Yeah. And then I think like when I'm home, I wake up and I get my important emails done with coffee before I go to yoga. So it's mm. like I've taken a bite out of crime and I'm mentally organized for the afternoon. Ah. Um, That's great. That's great. So let's transition or jump into what's the, what's your big vision with uh, girls school? Oh, man. So in the process, just in the last few months, I've been doing a lot of you know visioning work and thinking about where this could go because I've stumbled into some pretty cool potential opportunities and I think my dream is to have girl school be this umbrella for a community or it's sort of like a, a hub for a community centered around things led by talented women identified people and intersectional feminism, but in a really inclusive and fun and welcoming way that really is mostly a celebration of cool shit. Um, and I would love to have festivals in different cities and also around this build a bit of a platform for idea sharing and, you know, maybe you can't attend a festival, but you can pop by a website and find out about some new music or find out about this cool thing someone's doing or yeah. connect with an actual opportunity. I mean, to me, I mean, I also want to raise like a bajillion dollars for charity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One bajillion is my goal. <laughs> One bajillion. Um, I'm working on it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very slowly. Uh, and I mean, I think because if you're just looking at the general idea of em empowering women or inspiring girls, I think there's so many ways it could go. Mm -hmm. I would love at some point to create a system or places for girls to actually go learn different things, but that's so far down the road, right. <laughs> you know, and then I just want to hire and promote and celebrate a bunch of fucking talented women and connect them with each other because I think building a very successful business on the backs of talented people who might be overlooked in the mainstream mm -hmm. is a political statement in itself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love it. <laughs> just like making a sick, like making money like together as women will be a statement. Absolutely. And then donating as much of that as possible will also be another statement. Absolutely. <laughs> what are some issues that you care about? I mean, I'm, I, the arts changed my life mm -hmm. in so many different ways. I feel like I, I don't know who I would be without all of the art I ingested or created or, or have been near in my life. So I feel like I'm, Kids and arts. I mean, it's really kids and arts and women. <laughs> kids, arts, and women. Yeah. I love it. I, I mean, in the, in the power of salad. <laughs> <laughs> the power of salad. <laughs> All right. All right. Give us the lowdown on the power of salad. After chocolate, my legitimate favorite food is salad. I love a good salad. I like, I like salad too. <laughs> have, have you been to Sweet Green? Yes. <laughs> I once was like, Could I, maybe I should work for Sweet Green. I love salad. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm sure you could get them to, you could work with them at the girls' school. Hey, sweet green. <laughs> we love salad. <laughs> we love salad. Yes, we do. I love that. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I love salad. I'm not imposing that on anyone else. <laughs> I'm a big, I'm a big fan. I love it. Well, kale, kale. Chocolate salad would be my dream. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd have to see that, how that would, how that would manifest. But, uh, <laughs> like it. <laughs> um, God, I, I totally lost my train of thought here. Where, where was I? Where was I going? <laughs> I don't know. Um, now that this, the power of salad has been introduced, <laughs> it's just that powerful. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of power, I guess you know. How? What advice would you give to women? to stand in their power to, and, you know, to empower them, but also, you know, what, what would you, what advice would you give? I would say, I think kind of in a weird way, discovering, I come from so many different places of privilege, Mm -hmm. but I think discovering that as a woman that I was, am kind of forever going to be, a second class citizen in a lot of ways Mm. was a shock. And I would say first, like look, look around and observe and be honest about what you see and feel and don't like, like I think I kind of pushed a lot of stuff down because I was just surviving and it's, it's Mm. important to survive and it's important to go do your work and do your thing. And you don't need to be an activist a million hours a day at all. But I think looking around honestly and looking at yourself and thinking about what are the ways in which I, how do I limit myself through Mm. these things I've received from society and how do I limit others? Because we're all subject to inherent bias. I think Mm. that's the number one thing. Once you start doing that, I mean, it's like the road just opens in front of you and suddenly you're you know, a year and a half into planning a feminist music festival, you know, or you're just noticing when someone says something crappy and just being like, well, I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you don't want to say that. Or, (laughs) Or maybe you notice that you tend to look at women candidates for a job with a new eye. Or Mm. I think it's, again, I think it's like, exploring your environment your experience and yourself and then being honest and then reaching outward from there and, and do it in your way. Yeah. Like you don't need to go climb up a mountain and like build a castle to be powerful. I think you can just be a kind, loving person. And that's like already really hard to do and like really powerful you know, and you can do that in the context of your work and family and life. And yeah, I would just say there's no one way. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think it takes to be a kind, loving person? Cause it's, it's not easy. Like, as you just said, Oh man. Well, and the theme of the theme of our self-help talk today, um, I think it's, I think first you have to want to be mm. and you have to, look at what might be stopping you from that or the ways that you, the 
the little hiccups that you find on your way to that. I mean, I think most people are pretty good. So it's not like most people aren't starting at zero and trying right. to go from horrible to kind. <laughs> <laughs> most of us are pretty kind most of the time, I think. Yeah. Um, but you can always, you can always, we can always do better. You can always grow. And I think you do have to kind of like yourself a little bit to really like other people. Otherwise it's really scary. How do you love someone else if you're like, really protecting yourself all the time? Or how do you think, let, how do you trust someone else to tell you the truth if you're not truthful with yourself? Or, right. I mean, how do you trust the world to be kind to you if you're not kind to people around you? I guess it starts with what you, <laughs> starts, starts with you. Starts with you. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. That was great. And, you know, we got a couple questions before we wrap up here. One question I want to ask in terms of moving into a new space of creativity. You know, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, but, you you know, I think you said you, you know, you, you went from a whole, like from music and now you're getting to be creative in a whole new way. Like, what are you seeing with this new type of creativity? And you're creating something completely different. Hmm. I think that the discipline of taking risks in music set me up for the feeling of taking risks in this space. Like, I also think that I'm kind of naturally suited to organizing a little bit and, and sort of have a, a bit of a producer's mind. So for me, that part feels really comfortable. Um, and in, in a weird way, it makes it easier to take risks. Cause I've, I don't know why it feels more comfortable. Yeah. With like lots of people <laughs> it does alone in a room with a microphone and my violin <laughs> trying to write a song. But it, I think there is something to the camaraderie, um, of creating with other people and creating by bringing other people into alignment with each other. Yeah. Um, which makes it a little easier and more fun. But I, I don't know. I guess in the process of going from full-time player and musician and creator to like right now, girl school's really taken over my life. Um, I think I feel, I feel more creative than ever. I feel like my greatest creativity comes when I'm with other people and I'm seeing what's inside their brain mm. and that sparks things in my brain. And then, you know, linking people together is really powerful and really fun. And I find it really satisfying. And I guess to me, creating girls school is just another expression, another discipline yeah. of, within which to be creative. And I'm really enjoying it. Although right now violin does feel like a, like every time I play violin for money, it's like a big fat vacation. Like it's so chill. It's like so relaxing. <laughs> well, maybe you like need to do that I, more. All I have to do is show up and play violin right now. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's a great thing to have in your back pocket. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, one question I'd love to ask all my guests is what does the phrase live inspiration mean to you? Live inspiration? Oh my God. To me, it means like, to me, that feels like the you phraseology 
of, a, of something that I said to myself in a different way. And this is just me applying my shit to your shit right now. But uh, a couple years ago, I made a New Year's resolution, which was to do shit as opposed to not doing it. Just mm. if I had thought of it, I had to do it. And it literally led me into solo project, into girls school, into like all of the stuff. And it, I think, I think doing like thinking about stuff and and attracting it with your brain is one thing, but fucking doing it is another and doing it then invokes all these risks. And then you've taken everything we just talked about forever, <laughs> all the self-work, blah, 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 blah. But it is the most, it's like you can't move forward until you fucking move. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. you, so like, Absolutely. So that to me, it's like do shit. Love it. <laughs> love it absolutely 100% degree it doesn't all have to work out either <laughs> create something every day even if it sucks exactly live by Nick's bath mat <laughs> <laughs> love it well thank you so much for coming on and I just acknowledge you for being such a light in the world well back at you thank you and uh, where can people find you on the interweb social media and all that good stuff uh, well, you can find Girl School at www.girlschoolla.com, Instagram, Girl School LA. And then I'm at Anna Bullbrook on all of the things Instagram, Twitter, all, all Facebook, the things. <laughs> Google.com. Fantastic. <laughs> Just don't Google Airborne. <laughs> I mean, you can if you want, but just prepare for what you're going to get. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to today's episode of Neon Radio with Anna Bullbrook. I am your host, Nick Onkin. And if you enjoyed today's episode, you got something out of it, you got a piece of value out of it, I would love for you to share it out on your social medias. Give us a good review over on iTunes. It helps us get the podcast in front of more people and more ears. And don't forget to join the Neon Life community. Connect with other creatives and share your work, share your inspirations over at neonlife.com slash community. You want to check out the show notes again, it's neonradio.com slash EP125. And with that, you know what time it is. It's time to go out and create your life by creating every small moment. And we'll see you next time. Bye.